One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Welcome to The Real Story with me, Carrie Gracie, and we're coming from King's College London, where we're joined by a live audience. We are here because this week we wanted to do something a little special. We're taking part in a BBC Global season looking at how to repair the fractures that divide societies. The season's called Crossing Divides, and in this programme we're looking at how to overcome just one divide, that of age. How do we make sure the pace of economic change, technology, the scramble for homes, healthcare and other resources don't drive people of different ages apart? So over the next hour, we'll look at some of the key fault lines around age and we'll discuss how to cross them. And we'll also take questions from our great audience. Crossing the age divide on The Real Story. Now, let's meet this week's panel. Caroline McFarland is the founder of the think tank Common Vision, which attempts to unite young and old around shared goals. Diane Weiliang is a novelist and former business professor who grew up in China. Alex Smith founded a group of charities called The Cares Family, which attempts to connect young professionals and their older neighbours in rapidly changing cities. And Anne Karp is a sociologist. She teaches at London's Metropolitan University, and she's the author of a book called How to Age. The point of our programme is to look for solutions to crossing the age divide. But before we look for the solutions, let's measure that divide. How would you express it? And do you think it's bigger than it was in the past? Caroline, you first. Thanks, Carrie. In many respects, there's always been a difference between people of different ages, of course. Different life stages, different experiences, different living circumstances and different cohort or attitudinal trends. But I think it's certainly true that it's a much bigger deal now, both in terms of politics and public debate, because the current politics tends to fuel that kind of binary, polarised, often antagonistic debate in terms of the language of competing interests. So I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing much more focus on old versus young debates, which often seem a bit dangerous. Secondly, there's um, also the fact that some of the more traditional social groupings, such as class or education or gender, are often now more fluid. So I think often people are looking for new ways to term some of the social groupings. Thanks, Caroline. Um, Caroline, I think you're 32. I am. And sticking with the, the younger side of our panel, Alex Smith, you're... 35, I think. I am, yeah. What do you think? How do you measure that age divide and do you think it's grown? I do think it's grown. I think that's pretty clear that it's still growing. I think that's clear in our media headlines. I think it's clear in our economics that the divide is growing. But, you know, I'm an optimist. And I think it's worth focusing on the fact that part of the reason why the generational divide is growing is because we're all living longer. And that's a good thing. And therefore, we're living longer, and therefore there's a bigger gap between older people and younger people than maybe there was in the past. And turning to the other end of our panel, I mean, it's not the other end, um, Diane Weiliang, you're in your early 50s. Obviously, you've got a Chinese experience as well as a British experience to bring to this. What is your perception of that age divide and its growth? What I'd like to just start with is that I'd like to give you my definition of age comparisons. I'm looking at two generations. The difference between my parents, I'd say 20 years on me, I'm 50s, and say my children, 
who are becoming 20s. So I'm looking at these two. Is the generation between my parents and me bigger than the one between me and my children? My parents grew up with zero. They grew up in communism. They didn't have enough food. I was lucky. I own a property. I was able to go to the West to get education. So in my comparison, my generation gap between my parents and I is actually bigger between me and my children. And Anne Karpf, uh, last but not least, and you're, in a way, the person with the longest vantage point on this. because I'm a token oldie here. You're in your late 60s. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. Uh, yes, there have been a lot of change in our attitudes towards age, which I'm happy to talk about and are very significant. But the fact is that age is not the most important factor in the divisions we face. That actually the inequality within generations is larger than the inequality between generations. And factors like social class, ethnicity and gender are much more significant differences and shape inequality much more than any age inequality does. So that means to say there are wealthy young people and wealthy old people, and there are very disadvantaged young people and also many very disadvantaged old people. So they're, they're ageing... There's this, this fantasy that... When you get old, you all become alike. You become a sort of generic old person. You don't. And those people like me, who are middle class and educated and live in a Western country and are white, are privileged and age much more easily than people who don't have those advantages. But it's not the age that's the most significant factor. Okay. So we obviously are familiar with social, educational, class and gender and ethnic divides. And the programme today is about the age divide because to many people that is a new one in some societies. It's one that they're less familiar with. So it's the one that we are going to focus on while accepting your point, Anne, that it is not the only one and in many people's views not the most important one. However, there is a lot of discussion in developed societies about the age divide, the issue of wealth, the, quote, sorry kids, we ate it all, as one American newspaper headline put it, summing up that sense that there's been a generation of baby boomers, those who grew up after the Second World War until the early 60s, who enjoyed a golden era, guaranteed jobs and pensions, rising property, rising stock prices, and that in those certain societies, they are now those certain individuals sitting on a big pile of wealth that's simply not available to generations which come after. If there's any truth in that argument, is it a justice question and what do we do about it, Caroline? I think there is some truth that the assets and the financial circumstances of the millennials are very different to the circumstances faced by our parents when they were at a similar age. But I think there's also a danger in looking at the world with the kind of economists' spectacles on, if you like, where everything is a cake and you have to have a slice of it. And if someone else gets a bigger slice, then you get a smaller slice. I don't think that's how the world works in practice and how humans engage 
engage with each other. There's a lot to be said about turning some of the challenges into the opportunities and accepting that there are these challenges, whether it's around housing, whether it's around pensions provision, whether it's around being cash poor or having sort of financial resources. But there are a lot of opportunities that exist to change the circumstances of people who face those challenges as well. Alex? You see on greetings cards expressions like age is just a number. And to some people that may feel true. You feel different at individual points in your life. And I think that that's really important in our life experience and our life journeys. But age is not just a number, I don't think. I think that the era in which you're born and the era in which you grow up fundamentally shapes you as an individual. So through my organisation, we work with people born in the 1920s and 30s. They came of age during a depression Many of them had to travel abroad and fight a war. Meanwhile, if you're born after the war in the late 40s or 50s, you possibly grew up in a sexual revolution or you grew up at a time when the Rolling Stones were playing down the road and and that changed your whole fundamental view on the world and your place within it. If you're born in the 90s, you grow up in a time of ubiquitous technology and I think that that's fundamental to how you see the world and your role in it and the other people around you. I work with people who are largely in their mid-20s, and we've got thousands of volunteers in our organisations who are in their 20s and early 30s. And some of the people that I work with call me a millennial. I'm 35. And I find... Thanks for the love. Well, what do you call a millennial? I think a millennial is somebody who grew up with ubiquitous technology, who grew up when everything that they're living can be documented and shared with people around the world. I can remember the falling of the Berlin Wall... I think the fundamental thing, like I said before, I'm an optimist, and I think that what we all need to understand is that, yes, of course, your age and the time that you grew up is fundamental to your worldview. But if we were all the same and we all had the same worldview, that would be dull. So long as we share time and share experiences and share spaces, we can better understand one another. So is that your key solution? Sharing experience, sharing space sharing time, having places which are not, you know, in parts of southern Europe or southern Asia or East Asia, people find it very hard to believe that in the northern European or western kind of capitalist individualist society that we've created where we do everything that we can to save time and make things efficient, but within that political economy we actually shove our older neighbours or our older relatives into care homes. People in some other cultures can't believe that that's the case. So I do think that sharing space, sharing time, sharing new experiences is the best way to understand anybody else with a different experience. Diane, that sense of sharing, is that something that remains powerful in China's Confucian culture? I can say for sure that these are happening in China as well. But let me give you an example. I grew up in Beijing. All my friends are still living there. It's a typical urban environment full of now called middle class. What my friends had all done in the past 20 years was as soon as they could afford, when the housing was privatized, they were allowed to purchase property, they bought something for themselves. The second time they had some money, guess who they buy this for? They buy a flat for their parents. That's in China called xiaoshun. Filial piety. Yes. And that's a virtual. If you have money, you look after your parents. What you do, first thing you can afford, you buy a house for them. And then people got even richer. So they had more money. They bought something for their children because housing became so expensive. 
For them, it's their duty to help their children. So that is literally happened to every single one of my high school friends. In a way, I just want to put to you, because I've spent a lot of time in China. I'm very interested in what Diane's saying, because my perception of the way Chinese culture is headed is that those bonds of material sharing are very strong still. And yet the bonds of sharing time that we heard Alex talking about are getting weaker. People are so busy at work making the money that they can buy another property with that they're not sharing as much time together as they were. Absolutely. In 2013, China made this into a law that it's legally required you go visit your parents. (laughs) You look after them. In fact, there have been cases in Shanghai, elderly parents sue their children because they fail to come visit them. <laughs> it's changing, and China is trying very hard to keep this tradition going. And Carp, would you agree that despite what you said um, you know, earlier about it's not the most important divide in society, the age divide, that it is one, that it is growing, that it needs solutions, what would you say those solutions are? Well, what I would say, I mean, I feel very, very angry with the situation facing young people today. Very angry. But to go back to your comment before, uh, Carrie, where you said, you know, are, have old people hogged all the resources? That's a particular way of looking at things, a kind of zero-sum way that there is this very limited pool of resources and one generation hogs it so there's not enough left for the other generation. Now, the fact of the matter is, I mean, if we think of the UK, just to start with, this is the fifth largest economy in the world. The reason why young people are not benefiting from the things that my generation did is not because we used them all up. It's because political decisions have been made to roll back the state. So the kind of things that I took for granted, you know... My children can no longer take for granted. But these are political decisions. It's not because we used it all up. It's because a decision has been made to treat higher education, for example, as a financial business and to charge people astronomical fees because the idea is that it leads to higher income and it's a private gain rather than being a public gain and a social benefit as well. Uh, You know... Well, let's take this creative, fruitful discussion to the audience now because we've got um, people from many parts of the world, many different countries. So let's widen out the debate on solutions to these questions of resources and whether there really is an age divide around the allocation of resources and an older generation perhaps having too much or not of the share of those resources. Um, So who would like to begin for us? Thank you. Up there on the left. And could you tell me where you come from, preferably your age and your name, if you feel comfortable saying that? I'm Alessandra from Brazil. And uh, the question and the thoughts would be from a geographic perspective, where you're born is also important. So being young in the global north is different than being young in the global south. And the majority of us, uh, we come from the global south. So I would like to invite you to discuss about this. Um, Who'd like to tackle that? I'll have a first go. And I'm sure you have a lot to add. Because I would say I come from the south. 
and the sort of newly developed or the developing part. Uh, going back to what Anne brought up at the very beginning, that globalization in certain part of the world created more inequality. And yet you look at on the global sense, it had made created more equality that brought all the poor Chinese, the poor people from African continent, from Asian continent, brought all of us, our living standard up. So in the global sense, we are more equal today than we were, say, 50 years ago. There's more opportunity for the younger generation. If I look at China, there are a lot of Chinese who would leave China to go educated, and they go back to China because they see opportunities there. And if I compare that with the argument here in the UK, a lot of the argument was, oh, my parents took everything, there's nothing for me. And that's the difference. Caroline. I suppose just a quick point that sometimes when we define the younger generations, the millennials, it's based on how you grow up and what your relationship with technology as you're growing up is. And even in the global south and um, in many developing countries, there's a lot of young people who are growing up as digital natives. And I think that gives you know, a common thread to a lot of these discussions, whether they are in different places across the world. What is sort of lifelike and what are the experiences that we share and how do we communicate with each other, both um, within our own countries and across global borderlines? And how is that facilitated by technology? Let's take another question. Um, let's go to this gentleman here, um, four in... Can you tell us um, where you're from and your name and your age, if you feel comfortable doing so? Okay, I'm, I'm Bernard uh, from Cameroon. I'm 32. A little bit about my context is uh, we, we have a, a political generation where the leaders are very old and uh, the youth are not very active in politics. And uh, uh, it's kind of a challenge for some of us who think we are going to be leaders uh, very soon. And we, we are not sure how we are going to fit in because the older generation have set up a network whereby to get into the political system, you have to go through a channel that is not very, very clear. And I want to find out from the panelists what experience they have with respect to maybe the UK and how they got the youth to be involved more into political affairs so that we can actually affect the, what our president termed one time, the android generation. And that's my question. <laughs> So if I understand correctly, you're concerned about ageing leaders, um, a youthful demographic that is not engaged in politics, and how to get that young demographic engaged in politics to achieve some of these changes we're talking about. Alex wants to... I'm grateful to... for the question because um, I actually have a list of 24 ideas here. Okay. Which I'm not going to go through. Which I'm not going to go through. And they're to do with housing and education and health um, and you can find those on a website if you want to. But anyway, the, the last one, and I think the most important one, is votes at 16. And that is specific to the UK context. Um, I think in order to, to, to have young people's voices amplified, we need to expand the franchise hugely to make sure that those young people's voices are heard. And so that might sound counterintuitive that I'm talking about getting more young people to vote in order to, to, to reduce the generational divide. But I think it's absolutely fundamental. And I think around the world, one of the most important things that can be done is for uh, movements to inspire young people to, to not just get involved in, in politics, as you're saying, but even 
kind of more importantly than that, I think, to get involved in their local communities, whether that's through setting up a charity or through volunteering at a local faith group or through just knocking on a neighbor's door or even just saying hello to the bus driver when you get on the bus instead of keeping your iPhone headphones on and tapping your Oyster card onto a machine. Say hello to the barber. Say hello to the, the, the older lady who's sitting on her stoop. Whatever it might be, say hello to people. Know your community. Know the individuals within it. And through that process, it will probably politicise people a little bit as well, and then they can get involved in party Alex, I, I totally agree with you. And The question from Cameroon is a very interesting question because there is a sense in certain countries around the world um, that that politicians are a kind of gerontocracy and that, you know, it's kind of solidified and it's only old people. And, of course, what we need is not only old people or only young people, but every single age represented and meeting together and arguing and not, not people just fighting for their own sides. So I think this is a really important question. I'm afraid I can't give you a wonderful answer. I was just going to say, where's the answer? <laughs> I, I it's not good enough just to say the question is good. <laughs> I also... I also think that politics is is so much more than just voting at the elections once every few years. I mean, especially for a younger generation who have grown up with getting knowledge and information at the click of a button off the internet, being able to exercise a lot of our consumer choices in very different ways. It's something that Diane was also talking about in the China contact. And so a generation that everyday agency is exercised in so many different ways. We have a lot more social and political opportunities in those senses as well. So we are not just confining politics anymore to representation and interaction with politicians. I suppose it's also led to the rise of something which you might call DIY politics. So there's so much more that can be said about sort of civic participation in a bunch of different ways. I mean, Alex's project is just one of those examples. There's also quite an interesting analysis of what's happened in Tunisia, where you obviously had the young people being held responsible for the 2011 revolution. But by the time we got to 2014, it was estimated that I think around 80% of 18 to 24-year-olds didn't actually turn up to vote. And one of the most interesting analysis of that situation that I've read about is that it was very much because people went back into the confines of conventional politics and focused on rights and top-down government rather than looking at all of the middle level of civic and local structures and actors that could also be deployed to engage people. So we had the situation where people then sort of wanted political change and all they got was people talking about more government. That was sort of overburdening what could be done with national politics. So broadening the definition of of political political engagement. Thank you all for that. So in the first half of the programme, we looked at how to address economic age divides. And in this half of the programme, we're going to look at how generations are growing apart physically and in mental outlook, if indeed they are. And what can we do about it? So let's begin with physical space. Are the generations becoming more segregated physically? And if so, why? And Carl? Yes, yes, yes. And it's, it's appalling. If you go into the centre of most inner cities in the UK, you will really see a kind of age apartheid. You know, there are age ghettos. And there are a number of reasons for this. It's partly because inner cities on the whole are made very age unfriendly. 
this is beginning to be addressed now. The United Nations has designated some cities age-friendly and people have started to think about how to make inner cities more age-friendly. And that doesn't just mean old age-friendly. It means friendly for young people, very young people, children, people who are carting around babies, people who've got mobility problems. All these kinds of ways limit participation in social life and you know things like transport how accessible are public transport how plentiful is public transport so i feel really really strongly about the fact that increasingly inner cities are for young people and older people find it very difficult to access certain places and certain things. And even, I mean, take cinemas. You know, they've started a new thing in a, a number of cinemas where they have special pensioners, you know, silver screenings, they call it. The tickets are cheap and also you get a cup of tea and a biscuit. Do you think this is an attempt to segregate? I think this is awful. First of all, why not a dram of something a bit stronger than a cup of tea? (laughs) But also, what about, for example, unemployed young people? Why not make it cheap for them? And then you're encouraging some intergenerational mixing. So I am actually against age-specific resources and provision of facilities. I am for really trying to make public spaces and virtual spaces as much intergenerational as possible. Diane Wiliang, is there physical segregation growing in China between young and old? Absolutely. Actually, that is a more acute problem in China because China has grown so rapidly over the past 30 years. We moved from very much sort of four generations living together to now a very westernized nuclear family. And sometimes children would move thousands of miles away and to a completely different part of China. So the fact that the physical spaces are becoming much more segregated, it's definitely, definitely true. It's happening. And the urban issue, which is interesting, is that I personally find, I think, in China, but also in the UK, as well as in the US, urban environments are actually better for older, older people. Yeah. Because if I were to live in a suburb, that requires a three-hour driving. If I had a stroke, I would have died. In the inner city, I can call a taxi. Alex Smith, do you think that the physical segregation between generations is growing, and why does it matter? I mean, we've heard from Diane that the the intergenerational contact makes people happier. Is that a kind of universal? I'm going to give you uh, two problems, and then, because I know you like solutions, I'm going to give you a couple of solutions as well. (laughs) Yes, people, uh, the generations are more segregated, certainly, than they were 20 or 25 years ago. Statistically, uh, the number of people under 18 and over 65 living in the same community has more than halved in 25 years, and that's striking because that's a very short period of time. And another problem is that although we're spending more time with our immediate families, those nuclear families, statistically we're spending more time with our children if we have them than ever before, in spite of work pressures and in spite of economic pressures. But actually we're spending less time with the wider community, whether that's a trade union or a faith group or uh, taking your kids to a football club or, or whatever it might be. So those are the two problems. Some solutions. Um, one is about planning and policy. But why is that a problem? 
Sorry to interrupt, but you've said we're spending less time, but why is that a problem? It's a problem because of what I said before, that one of life's great beauties is the richness in diversity. And if we're just spending time with people who are like us, or people who have the same life experiences, we're not understanding other people. These are the things that create divides, political divides, divides across, across ethnicities, divides across different faith groups. It's, it's a fundamental issue. You know, this, the the whole theme of this series... is it just your view that it's good for you, or is there empirical evidence that it is good for mental health or absolutely. well-being in some way? Absolutely. Take, for example, loneliness. We've created this economy where we have... Groups of people living side by side but not interacting. I work with older people and I work with young professionals and we bring those two groups together. And the reason we do that is because people over 75 are the loneliest age group in, in the UK. People between 21 and 35, and this surprises some people, are the second loneliest age group of people in the UK. And for older people, it may be obvious why this kind of trend occurs. People pass away. People become retired. For younger people, it's because of smartphones and it's because of fear of missing out, FOMO. It's because of Instagram. It's because of all of these things. So those are the two loneliest groups. And if you can bring those two groups together, you can improve the lives of both parties. Hold that thought for one second. I just want to put that to the audience in a show of hands. Did you hear that? I mean, looking at you, you are that second group that Alex is talking about. You are the 21 to 35-year-olds. How many of you sometimes feel lonely? That's a majority. Yeah, that's probably a majority of our audience in this theatre who sometimes feel, feel lonely, So, which I guess backs up your point, Alex. You're allowed to carry on with your argument now. Well, <laughs> you know, suicide is the biggest killer of men under the age of 45 in the West. There are severe mental health problems, not just for older people with isolation, loneliness, dementia, etc., but for younger people as well with anxiety and depression and, and these sorts of things. So my points were... Number one, that there are planning and policy decisions that we can make to bring these two groups which live side by side but too infrequently interact together and that comes to mixed housing quotas or having more older people in schools performing pastoral or other roles. Uh, It could be increasing the pensionable age to encourage more people to work longer if they're living longer. That's politically difficult but there are lots of decisions that can be made. The second though is choice. I've touched on this already that people can be the change that they wish wish to see in the world. But here in the UK and around the world, there are untold intergenerational projects that older and younger people can get involved with, whether that's ours, the CARES family organisations, which bring younger and older people together, or there are creches in care homes. There are shared living spaces where students can go and live uh, with older people. Just explain how that works, a creche in a care home. So a care home is where you've got elderly people living, and then you're bringing very young children in. How's that working? I think this was done in uh, Japan in the 1970s for the first time, and uh, America followed in the 90s. There are examples of this happening around the world. It's literally, it does what it says in the tin. It's a care home. It's often a residential care home. There's actually an amazing Channel 4 program that you would be able to watch uh, called uh, A Care Home for Four-Year-Olds, I think it's called, where toddlers and kids up to the age of four or five are reading with older people, they're eating with older people, they're playing with older people. And this is advantageous not just to those young kids who are getting experience and connection with people from a different generation, it's advantageous to the older people as well who are having the 
the kind of animation of having young people in their lives again. And it's it is incredibly motivating. Young people much less scared of ageing because ageing doesn't become this kind of horror show, you know, generic, awful thing that's going to happen. It becomes associated with individuals, older individuals. And then they start to realise you don't cease to be an individual just because you're an old person. And that's really important. Caroline. I think um, the the public space issue that we're talking about is one of the consequences of the housing challenge that um, we discussed before. So if you are more transient in your housing situation and you aren't anchored in because you have either a place that you own or a place that has a secure tenure for a number of years, then you're less likely to go and join the local bowls club or get involved in your local allotment if you want to go and, you know, make use of, of, of... the garden, for example, or sort of have a stake in kind of the local park or use the community centre, that sort of thing. Um, But that is a challenge, but I think it's also an opportunity because if you're a young professional in your sort of mid-twenties living in a box flat or if you're a parent with young children who has, you know, tiny kitchen with no dining table to sort of sit there and do your kids' homework, then you're always looking for shared public spaces where you can go and access. And in, in many ways, access can help with a lot of those challenges, even if ownership is still a struggle. Let's see what suggestions our audience likes. Uh, you come from all over the world which of these solutions to narrowing physical or virtual space between the ages do you prefer let's take a question from this gentleman here hello everyone Uh, my name is Udam I'm from Cambodia I'm 27 and I would like to link back to what Alex said about media I really see the character of old people and young people connected to each other in the movie isn't uh, that where we started to use the culture and media and entertainment to divide each other already. Because I think most people, especially the younger generation, believe in media so much. So if I really see old people interact with younger people, I would believe so that we only belong to younger group. Mm. So my question is, uh, have we been brainwashed by the media? Or is it the media have been controlled politically by the government or by globalisation. Thank you. Well, it's an interesting and a big question. Let's deal with that media images of old and young people together, Hollywood images or wherever we're getting our cultural imaging from. And that excellent point that a lot of culture is experienced on screen by young people today. Who wants to tackle that first? Oh, well, I'll, I'll talk about that. I mean, I think that's a very important point about the representation of old people and the representation of young people. I mean, young people are often represented as kind of somehow feral and wild and selfish and out of control, whereas if you're an old person on screen, you're usually pretty depressed, and it's not surprising because you're about to die. Um, um, Diane, give us a... Chinese perspective on this, is there a kind of body of film in China which portrays excellent relationships between age groups and does that job? In China, there are, of course, films about generation differences. In a lot of senses, they are very exaggerated because it is a movie and you go to movies and you are told a story and that's good for storytelling. I am not sure that media is brainwashing any of us. Rather, that we, when we watch these films, 
we project what we perceive as our own problems or what we see in society into that image. Okay, let's take another question down here in black. Uh, thank you very much. Akmar Alsman, um, Kazakhstan, 23 years old. Um, would you agree that probably the nationalization of the trains and the uh, social care houses would finally finish this uh, physical segregation? Because young people are moving out and maybe having a chief of prayers to visit loved ones like every single evening would be a good chance to destroy this, this segregation. Or maybe the not working for paying the payment for the care houses, which is increasingly, uh, would help those young people to spend more time with their older ones. One point is to make train fares free and to make care homes care free. Care homes free, yeah. Okay, so that the young people would I mean, then have to work, would, would then be working less hard, would have more time to spend with their elderly relatives in those places or visiting them. I wouldn't places. say free, but maybe by the nationalization, it would decrease the, the, the sum that people would pay for the fares. I think it's really important, especially in the modern world, not to think about anything in black and white terms, whether that's old or young or state and market solutions or whether something should be nationalised or privatised, actually. So I think that we risk looking to policies of the past to solve the problems of tomorrow when, in fact, we should be just reframing the terms of debate. And I think often politicians do this a lot. They sort of harken back to the 70s and say, oh, if things were like this and run by the state like they were then, it would be better, when really there's a lot of other solutions that we could be looking at and looking at in a much more creative way and holistic way as well, because at the end of the day, train fares have knock-on effects for public spaces and, as you say, care homes have um, different effects on work. If I was to sort of say something that we could we could intervene in the social care system I would say we just need to have a completely different debate about what it means to care for someone that should be a status symbol in our society as it is in many places in the world in the in the east for example why are we seeing care as a burden that someone has to pay for that's really sad I agree with you in fact free train tickets free care house even free university someone has to pay nothing is free you pay with your taxes. So you end up paying much higher taxes. Well, I'll just offer an example in China. I'm not saying this is better or worse. In China, you wouldn't put your parents in the care home unless it's absolutely necessary. It's part of the culture that the first care would be you. Unless you really cannot manage, then you go to the care home. And of course, if I think of my old age, I'm sure my children put me in a care home because <laughs> they grew up here. For me, it's different views, what you see as caring, what it means, and it's rather than who does it, who pays for it. I totally agree, absolutely, 100% what you said, Caroline and Diane, about the importance and the revaluing of care is absolutely critical. But I think it's a very complex issue because when we're talking about care, who are we talking about, really? We're usually talking about women. And 
Women have shouldered, now I won't say just the burden of care, also the rewards of care, but in, in many different directions at the same time. And women are now in Western countries entering the workforce in large numbers. So there are a lot of conflicts. And when we live in a culture that is so individualized, where the burdens fall on individuals, it does start to feel more like a burden. And I wish it didn't. I mean, as for the public transport thing, this is just common sense. If you look at other European countries, they pay much, much less for a train ticket. The public transport is heavily subsidised because people understand what are the consequences if it's expensive. You actually get a better congregation in physical space if people can get to it cheaply. We are going to have to go to our last question for the panel because we're running out of time. And it really is the obvious one about what the future holds because... Are these solutions that we've heard about this evening, are they merely slowing an inexorably widening age divide? Or is it possible for us to keep within the gap that humans are familiar with between their old and their young, between grandparents and grandchildren, between parents and children? Um, Diane? I personally think the gaps exist. The gaps are not bad things. We have used two gaps. Maybe they increase. Maybe that is how the society progress, that we might understand less of our children because they move forward. They move further than we've ever been. And that's how things work. In terms of how we can help each other, I'm not saying we absolutely need to reduce the generation gap. I say let it be. Maybe let it grow. But we can help each other. If the parents have a house, they have wealth, why don't they pass on to their children? Why is that a problem for parents? The generations have their own priorities. Why can't the generations share with each other? That's an obvious solution. So in a way, the gap is not the problem. The problem is that we need to take more responsibility for bottom-up solutions rather than waiting for the why state to handle it. Why don't we just share I help my parents, they help me, and I'll help my children. I don't see that as a problem. Alex, what does the future hold? Are gaps widening? Can they be narrowed? Can they be held constant? Well, I think we, right now and in the last few years and maybe in the next 15 years, are in a period of extraordinary change, equivalent to the Industrial Revolution 200, 250 years ago. It's called the Fourth Industrial Revolution. It's affecting different parts of the world in different ways. And as I said before, I think there'll need to be different solutions in different parts of the world. But I'll return to what I said at the beginning, which is that I'm optimistic, I'm positive, because I think that on almost every measure, the world is improving. And in spite of sensationalist headlines, or in spite of statistics which isolated can look incredibly bad, especially in a period of rapid change, we sometimes lose perspective on that fact that the world is improving. And the last thing I'd say, I think, is just that this generation of young people, as as I said before, are, are growing up with ubiquitous technology, are growing up with this sense that not just their own children or their own parents are people for whom they're responsible themselves, but actually they're connected to people in extraordinary ways on the other side of the world. And that technology makes us all appreciate that we're neighbours in a way and we all share the same space. And I would say that we, we shouldn't just look out for our own children or our own parents. Actually, we should look out for one another as neighbours and that we should all kind of engage in community activity and 
to finish up, I think that, again, this generation of, of young people are extraordinarily communitarian in their outlook, and I think that ultimately things will get much better. That's an encouraging view. Caroline, do you share it? I do, yeah. I agree with most of what Alex has uh, uh, said today. All um, divides are to some extent manufactured in some way or self-perpetuating, if you like. So whether it's old and young or left-wing, right-wing or individual and society, that's not really the way that real life plays out. It's just how we talk about it. And so we need to go beyond this polarised public debate that sort of speaks in the language of individualism and competition between people all the time. And I think what we need is to understand that other people are vulnerable in society and who has the power is different to who feels they have the power often and vice versa. So that's why whenever we talk about intergenerational stuff, we hear sort of stuff about the cult of youth over there and then we have sort of another conversation about the resources that the older people have enjoyed over there. And actually, everyone feels vulnerable in these circumstances. Everyone sort of has these uncertain futures. We haven't talked about the vote for Trump and the generational divisions over that. But one of the most interesting points of analysis I've read over the Trump vote is that the sort of rising mortality rates among middle class, um, middle aged white men was one of the factors amongst Trump voters. So people who were more sort of likely to to be at risk of um, suicide or liver disease had a stronger correlation with voting for Trump. People are vulnerable. And actually, you know, we're feeling vulnerable as individuals who disagree with those views when actually a lot of people are acting the way they do out of that uncertainty. And the more that we can recognise that and have a common understanding and common dialogue about that, the more we can actually work towards a shared future rather than different ones. I want to give the last word to the oldest person on the panel who... um, (laughs) So when you look to the future and do you feel the confidence that Alex is talking about, about a rising communitarian younger generation or or do you share some of what Caroline's feeling about all the different vulnerabilities? Overall, I feel extraordinarily optimistic about the young generation, not just because I'm the mother of two of them, but... um, What I think is the key here is to finding our common interests. And I think this narrative of intergenerational inequity is a real red herring because I think the different ages have common interests. When I see, for example, young Americans who have mobilized against gun control in this extraordinary way, issues that older Americans have been banging on about for a long time, and young people people have galvanized each other and I mean it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the midterm elections in the US in November because this has now become a major political issue so I go back to what I was saying at the beginning I think this is about politics rather than age I think it's about political decisions but I also think it's about young people just as um, Caroline and Alex have said realising, and old people, realising that they've got common interests and that we need to get together because we're much stronger when we fight for things together. So I feel very optimistic about the younger generation and I feel that this kind of artificial divide can come down. I mean, if the Berlin Wall could come down and apartheid could end, then age apartheid can end as well. Mm 
Yes. So let's see where our audience fall on this question. We'll take a show of hands. Who thinks that by applying all the solutions we've discussed this evening, that the age divide across the many countries that you all come from can be managed or even overcome? Hands up. And who thinks the age divide is turning into an inexorable age gulf? I'm pleased to say that we end on a note of optimism. That was an overwhelming majority in favour of a better future between the generations. Thank you all uh, in the audience for your contribution to a fascinating discussion and a huge thank you to our brilliant panel. So from me, the production team and all here at King's College London, that is the real story for this week. Thank you for listening.